Um, if you hear clicking, it's me eating my mushroom soup. Why is that <laughs> clicking? Like the sound of cutlery? No? Okay. Okay. Welcome to Hidden Among Us. I'm your host, Chris. And this is Honda. And welcome to episode 63. Next week, we'll be having our second Halloween special. Honda, are you excited? Sure. But wow, second. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just crazy to think that October's already reached its end. I'm not ready for the year to be over. I'm also, I mean, I would like for the year to be over, but also not ready. Yeah, precisely. Also, like, the story I have, I think the tab has been open for, like, a year on, like, the Halloween story I want to cover. So I'm excited. Oh, nice. And not to, like, overhype the episode or anything. I'm just very excited about it. I mean, you say that about all your stories. That is true. So, so Honda, how has your week been? I feel like it's been a very exciting time in Singapore. The past week. <laughs> We're not yeah. going to talk about it because like we don't want to get sued or anything. But like, it's just... It's, it's, an, just, it's, yeah. a, it's a fun time to scroll through your phone at, at, at midnight. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, I think to be vague or not vague, like recently regarding two like very i guess famous popular well-known businesses in singapore like there have been like two expose articles like about two separate issues but it was just massive exposés on these things and like it came out left field nobody knew about it and then now it's like a huge thing though the first expose incident as it sort of died down. The second one is live and kicking. <laughs> like, it's so alive that it's, like, happening right now still. Yeah. Like, people our age group are, like, talking about it. <laughs> yeah. And, like, okay, so I think that led to, like, Honda's... Honda and, like, our basic... What am I saying? English is my first language. We're basically discussing Singaporean influencers and how we barely know any. <laughs> and every time we do find out about Singaporean influencers, right, it's because they've they've got like themselves tangled up in some drama. And then we're like, oh, okay, this person exists. But other than that, like we just don't know anyone. I mean, it's not like we watch them. Right? Yeah, this thing, like, they, they just don't interest me. So, the content they create is just not content. So I... it won't come up if we don't, like, even click on their content. That's true. That's true. Yeah, but, like, they, they just don't make content that I enjoy. No. It's no. always, like... Uh, I don't know some of the videos I would see it's always, it's always like, like based on school content yeah. <laughs> it's always in like IJ pinafore I'm just like okay <laughs> oh my god I remember uh, several years ago there's this one influencer who like I think she's just generally 
either you hate her or you love her. She's one of those people. <laughs> um, and I remember she did this video and she came out in like our secondary school uniform. And then it was like a whole thing. Like people were so upset about it. I remember under her Instagram post, people were tagging my art teacher. <laughs> like, what is my art teacher going to do about this? <laughs> my art teacher's like this tall, meek man. Like he's just he's just a bro, right? But like, what can he do? Like, were they expecting him to take down this influencer? <laughs> I don't know. But it was just it was just a very interesting time. Yeah, because like our... Okay, for context, our secondary school, at least two students, has been like sort of hyped up as as like this school with such a huge history, you know. So you have to be like proud of your uniform. And like the uniform itself is part of like a large tradition and history. So I think because of that, and mostly because I think students were just gatekeeping the uniform, <laughs> everyone just like rallied against this influencer. And I was like, okay... I threw away my pinafore. <laughs> I lucky um, wish I kept it, but yeah. Well, actually, I think... I think I might have mine. Yeah, oh, I lucky wish mine. I kept it. Yeah, Your sister's. <laughs> yeah, okay, but the thing is, like, it's just nostalgic to keep. I have um, my PE t-shirt from primary school. What? <laughs> yeah, okay, so in primary school, we have this little tradition thing where on the last day, you basically get your friends and stuff to sign and write messages on your, like, uh, okay. PE t-shirt. Yeah, so I still have it. It's in my closet. And I look at it and I'm like, wow, I can never fit into that. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be creepy if you can fit in your primary school stuff. Dude, I, I know people who can fit into, like, oh <laughs> legitimate children's clothes, you know? <laughs> Like, stuff you get from Kitty's Palace. Like, I know people who can fit into those. So, it's not, like, the most strange idea out there. Yeah, but I have it. Um, I have a bunch of my secondary school uh, house t-shirts. Like, I refuse to throw them away. I have some of my class t-shirts from secondary school, too. Okay, I, I feel like I have, I think, class t-shirts. Yeah, I just don't, didn't want to get rid of it for like nostalgia okay listen Marie Kondo came out saying that the the physical item itself um, you don't need it for the nostalgia and the memories because the nostalgia and memories exist even without the physicality (laughs) of the object but my goldfish memory is going to forget all these things like I need to look at things to evoke the memory of it like I mean, okay, controversial opinion. Controversial opinion. You know how during concerts, people say how last time people go to concerts and like they immerse themselves in the music or whatnot. And nowadays when you go for concerts, everyone has their phones up recording stuff. Mm-hmm. Listen, okay. I sometimes look back at my concert video footage and like it hits me in the feels. I was just like, Holy shit, like, I was there, I experienced these things. All these things, I can't remember if I didn't oh record God. them. Are you of the differing opinion? I'm sorry. Like, that. this is my controversial take. Let people videotape their concerts. Also, half the time, these companies gatekeep concert footage and they don't even release it. So, you might as well <laughs> take some of your own. 
like 10 years down the road i'm gonna look back at these videos and be like holy shit i was so close to bts <laughs> i was so close to them <laughs> yeah so that's my controversial take honda do you agree disagree i don't know yeah i just realized that we we're both wearing our jc like oh god <laughs> These are comfortable. (laughs) Okay, hot take. Our like council shirt, this this council OGL planning com. What was the event this was for? Orientation. Orientation. Our our orientation shirt material is the best material, hands down. The regular house shirts don't hold a candle to it. Like I don't even wear the regular house shirts. I just enjoy how comfortable these shirts are. Do you still have the green one? You yeah, wear them, I do. Right? I still have the green one. I wear it sometimes. <laughs> fun times. Uh, fun times. Good times. Tiring times. <laughs> Don't want to remember. Yeah, neither do I. Holy guacamole. Dang, how do we go from influencers to like... T-shirts. <laughs> School t-shirts. <laughs> Okay, well, Honda, do you have a story for us today? Yeah, it has nothing to do with SG or nostalgia or (laughs) t-shirts. I feel like we're just, right now, we're just fueled by um, excitement about recent influencer events in Singapore. (laughs) This was keeping us going, guys. Not life, it's... If not, it's going to be like painful schoolwork. Yeah. Meanwhile, we can just, you know, watch people um, get (laughs) upset, analyze influencer drama. So that's interesting. It's going to be a sudden jump into my story. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's jump into it. Yeah. Today, my story is about Susan Powell. Listen, why is her name so familiar? <laughs> it's like the gear saying like in your head. <laughs> Susan Powell is very familiar to me. I think you might have heard or you might watch have watched something. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, going back to like what we spoke about earlier about like Goldfish um, memory. Al- well, Goldfish memory too, <laughs> but like algorithms and stuff. My YouTube is just primarily, right now I just watch a lot of interrogation footage and interrogation analysis and like crime videos. Mm. So in the gajillion that I've watched the past month, maybe I watched the Susan Powell one, I'm not sure. It's just that her name is so familiar. Yeah, maybe you might remember something. Okay. Okay. So Susan Powell is a missing person from West Valley City, Utah. And the main person of interest in this case was her husband, Joshua Powell, but was never formally charged. See, I think they called him Josh Powell, right? Mm. It's just my neurons in my brain, they're just like flickering right now but i don't know where i heard this okay flickering into the darkness <laughs> you, you know you know that very that uncanny feeling where you're on the cusp of 
knowing something, but you don't get there. <laughs> That's me right now. Like, it's right here, my frontal lobe, you know. I can feel it. I can <laughs> feel it. Like, I recognize it. Don't I don't know recognize... if your memories are supposed to be in your frontal lobe, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't know where it is, but it's like, I, I feel it. Like, I know. I've heard these names before, but I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. All right, Honda. Carry on, carry on. Yeah, so this case isn't an ordinary missing case. And there's a lot of like bizarre things that happen. And also still a lot of unanswered questions. Ooh. Yeah. So a little bit of background on Joshua. He was born on January 20, 1976. And his parents had a dysfunctional marriage, largely due to his father's being like drifting away from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, oh. which is a Mormon church. Oh, it's because it's only a part of a cult, okay? okay. <laughs> so I mean, you Mormons. Most people in Utah are Mormons. I know, but... Okay, all right. <laughs> so according to divorce filings made by the mother in 1982, um, the father, Stephen, shared pornography with Joshua and his two brothers. And <laughs> face Oh, away, God, man. Okay. Yeah, and refused to teach or enforce limits on certain behaviors. And also, like many would be killers as a teenager, Joshua allegedly killed gerbils belonging to one of his sisters and threatened his mother with a butcher knife. Listen, okay, why? <laughs> why harm poor animals? What have you done to you? But also, like, everything the father is doing is so. Unmormon. Unmormon. It's like the complete antithesis to Mormon. I mean, that's why he drifted away from the church. <laughs> okay, so Joshua also attempted suicide on at least one occasion. Yeah. Uh, in 1998, when he was living in Seattle as a student at the University of Washington, so this is before he met Susan, he was in relationship with a woman named Catherine Terry Everett who he met at a local LDS church organization. Mm. However, he became very possessive towards her and she would mention that um, he would have restrictions and limitations on what she could do and couldn't do when it came to her family. Oh, okay. Like and, her own family. Yeah. Oh God, okay. Yeah, and if she was going to visit him, he had to come along as well and she couldn't go by herself. Oh God, Okay. Yeah. So when she went to visit a friend in Utah without Joshua, she did not return and later called Joshua to break up with him over the phone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think she dodged the bullet. But <laughs> she dodged the whole bullet, dude. <laughs> I mean dating advice on somebody who has never dated anyone, but like if your boyfriend is literally trying to attach himself to your hip and restricts mm. you from seeing your own family, that is a huge red flag. You need to get your ass out of there. Mm-hmm. You gotta go. Yeah, so Joshua met Susan Cox, a classmate at his LDS Church Institute of Religion course uh, during a dinner party at his Tacoma apartment in November 2000. And the two began... the big. Blah, the two began a relationship and married in the Portland, Oregon temple in April 
Mm. Yeah. So you know, at first, Susan and Joshua were a normal couple, and both of them were devout members of the of the church, with the Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints Church. So, <laughs> gee, I wonder what church. Not the not not like normal. Not the regular church. church. <laughs> no offense, but yes. <laughs> Yeah. We were scared the Singaporean influences might sue us. Now we should be afraid <laughs> the Mormons might. Yeah. So after they got married, they moved into Joshua's father's home in Washington. But then a few disturbing things started to happen, unbeknownst oh. to Susan. Her father-in-law, Stephen, had developed an obsessive infatuation with her. Like father, like son, I guess. Honda, you remember that? That feeling, <laughs> the thing, it's come together. I remember. Okay, okay. I'm excited. All right. Yeah, so this father, this father-in-law followed Susan around the house with a camcorder and also used a small mirror to spy on her while she used the bathroom. Also, okay, wait. Just to clarify, this was the father that was kicked out of the Mormon church because he was showing his son's pornography, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Joshua's father. Mm, okay, okay. Yeah, so he even stole her underwear from the laundry, read her journals, and even posted love, love songs online under a pseudonym. Oh, God. Ew. Ugh, the love songs. Ugh. Yeah, and in 2003, um, he confessed his feelings to Susan, who obviously rejected him. Oh my god, that must have been so awkward. I know, right? And apparently this encounter was captured by Stephen's camcorder. Oh my gosh. <gasps> Can you imagine being in a car with your father-in-law and he like, just turns you and he's like, okay, so I'm kind of in love with you. Oh no. Okay, it feels like some bad porn plot. It, oh! <laughs> it is! Isn't oh, this a whole king? Like, I don't know. Like low, low key incestual kind of thing. Oh my god. But like, I feel so bad for her though. <sighs> like, it must be so damn uncomfortable. I mean, I was joking aside, like, his behavior is extremely predatory and he's crossing boundaries he should never cross <laughs> as like a father in law. And mm-hmm. also because I, I mean, he's like taking videos of her without her consent. It's just so gross. Yeah. And because of this, the couple moved out of state soon after. So Susan could distance herself from Stephen. Yeah. In 2005, the couple had a son named Charlie and two years later, another son named Brayden. And the couple were having marital issues and she hoped that the new members of the family could, you know, make the family situation better. Oh, man. But it only got worse. Yeah, because at the end of the day, like, you can never use children to... Yeah, and I feel like some couples purposely give birth to children to fix their problems, but... I think it's a psychological thing with that. Yeah, but, like, it's, it's this intentionality in, like, getting pregnant and giving birth in order to keep the family together. Yeah, yeah. Like to make sure that the husband doesn't stray away or like he doesn't consider divorce. But in reality, it just, 
it doesn't solve the issues you know the kids now have to live through this like dysfunctional family life Mm -hmm. situation where both parents clearly don't like each other (laughs) yeah so Susan had been recording the struggle of the family in her journals and even videoed the family's assets in case they filed for divorce. So the couple filed for bankruptcy in 2007 and they were $200,000 in debt. Holy guacamole, okay. Yeah, in June June 28, 2008, um, Susan wrote a letter that she addressed to her family and friends. And in the letter, she warned them of Joshua and said Joshua had threatened to destroy her if she filed for divorce. Oh my god. Yes, she also said that if she dies, that it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Okay, yeah, this one I remember. Yeah, this letter was kept in her safe deposit box. Oh. So, on the fateful day, December 6, 2009, um, Susan, in the morning, Susan takes us two sons to church services. And then later at 5 p.m., a neighbor comes and visits Susan and leaves shortly after. So, this was the last time that Susan was seen alive by anyone outside of the house. Oh, God. Mm. Yeah, so initially, the entire Powell family was reported missing on December 7, the next day, by relatives. Yeah, Joshua's mother, Teresa and sister Jennifer Graves went looking for the family at the house mm-hmm. uh, shortly after being informed that the children had not been dropped off at daycare in the morning. Oh my god. Yeah, so they called the police after they failed to make contact with Joshua and Susan. Do you know what this is reminding me of? It's really, mm-hmm. really reminding me of the, of the Chris Watts story. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I thought you were going to mention Chris Watts. Yeah. <laughs> This is me mentioning Chris Watts. This yeah. one? Ah, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Chris Watts was very, very tragic. And this one also ends up quite tragic. I think whenever it involves children, like missing children and stuff like that, like it just makes the already like tragic situation even worse. Mm. Yeah, so the police broke into the house fearing that the family were victims of carbon carbon monoxide poisoning, but they found no one inside the house. Mm. Yeah, but the the police noted did notice um two box fans blowing at a wet spot on the couch. Yeah. Susan did not show up for work and her purse, wallet, and identification were all found at the house. Yeah, this really reminds me of the Chris Watts case now. Mm. Like, yeah, so her phone was later found in the family's only vehicle, a Chrysler Town and Country minivan that Joshua had been using. Yeah, and later that day at about 5 p.m., Joshua returned home with the two boys. Oh. And he was taken to the police station for questioning. So he claimed that he left Susan sleeping at home shortly after midnight on December 7th and taken his boys on a camping trip to Simpson Springs in western Utah. Oh god. Okay, one. Say she left he left her at home where on the couch she suddenly became a puddle. What? Two, like it's very clear that he's trying to establish an alibi by taking them camping. Right? Because it takes time to go to a campsite. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe he was banking on that. Mm. I mean, assuming he is the one who did it. I mean, like, at this point, like, he is extremely suspicious. And so is his father. So, 
Mm, but then police mm. visited Simpson Springs on December 10 and found no evidence of the campsite that Joshua had described. Oh! <laughs> At least create a more solid alibi. Precisely. What? No, no matter what alibi you give, right? The police are going to check it out either way. And they also found it suspicious that Joshua would take his young boys out camping in blizzard conditions after midnight. Oh, yeah, it was December. Yeah, and right? when, he was scheduled, when he was scheduled to go to work at his job just hours later, so I don't know what kind of camping trip he was planning. Hmm. Okay, okay. So <laughs> Joshua had not told his boss that he would not be coming to work that day and explained to the police that it was because he had thought it was Sunday rather than Monday. Is this man okay? <laughs> I feel like when you are working, there is no way you would ever mix up Sunday and Monday Mm. because you know you have to be at work. And your kids at school. Yeah, oh yeah, right. The kids have to go to school. Like, even if it's not in the forefront of your mind, it's always a nagging reminder. And I don't think, like, Susan will let her kids go out like when next day is like school right yeah like, but okay but the bigger issue is the fact that it is snowing who wants <laughs> to go camping in the snow i mean i think some people do it but i would assume that these are adults like you wouldn't bring mm. young children out camping in the snow maybe some do but maybe but like i i just think it i mean this whole thing is just strange yeah, and upon searching in the residence on December 9, investiga- investigators found traces of Susan's blood on the floor. Oh, God. And they also find life insurance policies on Susan for $1.5 million and a handwritten letter from Susan expressing fear for her life. I'm so unsurprised about the life insurance policy. My God. <sighs> in August to the um. In August 2012, later on, like Wentz Valley City Police released documents showing that Joshua took actions that were regarded as highly suspicious following Susan's disappearance. So Joshua had liquidated Susan's retirement accounts, cancelled her regularly um, scheduled chiropractic sessions, and withdrew his children from daycare. Mm. And he had also previously spoken to co-workers about how to hide a body in an abandoned mine shaft in the western Utah desert. Okay, listen, you know, this is sort of reminding me of those people who get caught for like murders because they Google things like how to hide, like last week's story, like how to hide a body, how to detect like how much nicotine can kill a person. Like you're just setting yourself up for failure at this point. So police interviewed the couple's elder son, Charlie, who confirmed that the camping trip uh, did happen, but unlike his father, he stated that Susan had gone with them, but she did not return. Oh, so he was, yeah. he was probably feeding them stories to tell the police. Mm. Yeah. But they're also the children, so like it's not like they can get their stories straight, right? Yeah, and I think the fear of losing their remaining parent just overrides 
Yeah. Yeah. And weeks after her disappearance, a teacher reported that Charlie had claimed that his mother was dead. Oh no. Charlie's the yeah. younger one, right? Older, older. Older one. Oh no. Ah. Yeah. And furthermore, Susan's parents, Chuck and Judy Cox, claimed that while at daycare several months after the disappearance, Braden, Braden the younger mm-hmm. uh, son, drew a picture of a van with three people in it and told carers that mommy was in the trunk. Oh, no. So I think it is highly plausible that Susan, like the mom, went with them in a the car. But uh, didn't come Josh back. murdered her somewhere. Probably. Yeah, but, okay, but... That doesn't explain the fact that there was no evidence they had gone on a camping trip at the camping site. Unless, unless they I mean, camping, but they didn't go to that location. They I mean, the father elsewhere. could just say, oh, we're going on a camping trip. Like, that's what you can... I mean, if, you're, if your parents says this is a camping trip, then you're, yeah, if you're young, you, you'll probably just oh. say, oh, it was a camping trip, you know? Okay, yeah, I didn't... I didn't take that into account yeah 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 yeah, yeah they're yeah. young kids they don't i don't know if they really yeah, I, I, they, they're not able to like process these things and like if for example they witnessed what happened it could be a form of repression where the only thing they can remember is that they were going on a camping trip mm. yeah it's wow my god this is so sad <laughs> don't cry yet oh <laughs> <sighs> I mean, listen, I don't like kids, but, like, stop traumatizing like children. Like, stop. They don't understand anything. <laughs> My goodness. Okay. Yeah, so investigators informed the media that they plan to question Joshua again and subpoena all footage and interviews of Joshua from local television stations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so on December 14, Joshua retained an attorney in connection with the investigation and police said that he grew increasingly uncooperative. Oh, not a good sign. Yeah, a few days later, he took his sons to Puyallup to stay with with his father for the holidays. Out of all people, (laughs) that person. (laughs) Yeah, and by December 24, Joshua was considered a person of interest in the investigation. And then on January 6, 2010, he returned with his brother, Michael, to pack the family's belongings, indicating that he was moving permanently to Puyallup. Okay. Yeah, so in Puyallup, Joshua occupied a home with his two sons, his father, Stephen, and his brothers, Michael and Jonathan, and his sister, Alina. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Joshua indicated that he would rent out his house in Utah. Yeah, and it was reported that he returned to Puyallup after he had lost his job. And soon after this, um, the website susanpowell.org was launched and it was described as the official website of Susan Powell. But then um, the site's anonymous entries defended Joshua as the victim of a smear campaign by Susan's family and his estranged sister, Jennifer, and the LDS church. What? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Additional posts also speculated that Susan's disappearance was connected to that of Stephen Kosher, a former journalist who vanished the same week as Susan, and that the two had run off to Brazil together. Wait, okay, so Joshua's, Joshua Powell's side were basically painting 
uh, Susan as this like eloper, <laughs> unfaithful wife who ran away with a journalist to Brazil. Hmm. Yeah, so Joshua and Stephen were widely believed to have written these posts. <laughs> I mean, the character assassination they're attempting is just... Mm. Like, I, I find character assassinations just very interesting in general because it's like... These are, these are things that you're making up to, like, ruin a person's image and identity, right? But then, like, for example... Everyone else knows that Susan was this like dedicated loving mother. Like, how is that gonna work? If people in real life can see that, like, what you're saying about this person doesn't make sense. Mm. Yeah. So like in late 2010, both men claimed that Susan had abandoned her family due to mental illness and that she left with another man. But Susan's family rejected these claims as being unsupported by any evidence. Yeah. Yeah. So investigators started to scrutinize um to Joshua's father upon learning from a family friend that he had been obsessed with his son's wife. So after seizing um the computer, the images from the computer, like from his house in 2010, turned up, and there were four thousand five hundred images of Susan taken without her knowledge, oh including close-ups of specific body parts. Oh. Oh my god. Gross. Dude, that's just... Oh my god. Yeah, and police also turned their attention to Michael, the brother, after learning that he had sold his broken-down Ford Taurus to a wrecking yard in Pendleton, Oregon, shortly after Susan's disappearance. Hmm. Yeah, so when police found the car, a sniffer dog indicated that a decomposing human body had been in the trunk but the DNA test on the car proved inconclusive. Okay. Yeah, so on September 14, 2011, Utah authorities discovered a possible gravesite while searching Topaz Mountain, a desert area near Nepi that Joshua had frequented as a campsite. Yeah, and there were also signs of recent soil disturbance and shoveling, but after investigators were, dig- were digging a few feet down, they didn't find any remains. Oh, God. Yeah, so the police continued to examine the site for a few, for a while, but offered no explanation as to why they previously previously announced the finding of remains when none had actually been confirmed. Yeah, what are they doing? But the authorities said they were following a scent detector by the sniffer dogs. Okay, but even then, like, (laughs) usually, if I'm not wrong, usually it's they will announce these things after something's been found. Right. And even if not, usually like the headline will say that a potential body has been found or whatever. There's always a disclaimer. It's never so like just because a dog went woof and like yeah, body. Oh my- <laughs> Poor doggo, <laughs> you were doing your best, baby. Yeah, so uh, unsurprisingly, the relation between um, the Powell and Cox families became increasingly hostile. I mean, yeah, I mean, freaking two people are attempting a smear campaign on, like, 
the Cox's deceased daughter, which I think is extremely disgusting. <laughs> that instead of focusing on efforts to find her, they're like, oh, you know, she ran away to Brazil with some journalist guy and she's like mentally ill. <laughs> like, you're not making yourself look good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so after the police raid in their home in 2011, both uh, Joshua and, and the father, Stephen, spoke to major news outlets regarding journals that Susan had allegedly written about the relationship between Stephen and herself. And Stephen claimed that he and Susan had been falling in love prior to her disappearance and cited the content of the journals as evidence to support his theory that she was mentally unstable and could have run away with another man. Okay. I mean, he's the Delulu one. Yeah. Um... Yeah, so because of this, a judge issued a permanent injunction forbidding Joshua and Stephen from publishing any material from Susan's journals and ordering the pet to either return or destroy any journals already published. So they were publishing her journal without her consent? I mean, she's not there. I mean, she's not there, but they were... Pub- Sorry, why yeah. did I phrase it that way? <laughs> they were publishing... <laughs> no, what I meant to say was they were publishing her journals. <laughs> it's so tragic. I don't uh, like these men in general. Just, just such shitty people. And on top of that, they're now publishing her journal, like her innermost thoughts. Mm. Like the one thing that she managed to protect was her true feelings, her thoughts, her everything, and they just just invade that privacy, you know, and just, like, distribute it for everyone else to see, and then take, like, her true self and then twist it further and say that, like, look, this is evidence that she was mentally unstable. Like, it's just, it makes me so angry. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay. Mm-hmm. Well, on September 22nd, Stephen was arrested on charges of voyeurism and child pornography after police found evidence that he had secretly videotaped numerous women and young girls, including Susan. Yeah, so John Long, an assistant attorney general for Washington State, said that um, Joshua was a subject in the child pornography investigation. And a friend of Stephen claimed that he was preoccupied with pornography and was hung up on Susan sexually. Yeah, so Chuck Cox filed for, filed for custody of Susan's children the day after Stephen was arrested. Mm-hmm. And the Washington court eventually granted Cox temp- temporary custody of the boys, ruling that Joshua would have to move, move out of Stephen's home if he wanted to regain custody. Okay, I'm just remembering the end of the story, so I need to like brace myself emotionally for this one. Okay, let's <laughs> carry on. Yeah, so Joshua rented a house in South Hill, but authorities later alleged that he had never actually moved into the house, merely making it appear as if he had satisfied the court's instructions while continuing to reside at Stephen's home. In late September 2011, Joshua's sister Jennifer stated that she believed Joshua was responsible for his wife Susan Powell's disappearance. And his other and his other sister Lena had also been suspicious of him as well, but she later withdrew her suspicions as she felt that Joshua had been unduly harassed by the investigation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so by this time, the West Valley City had spent more than half a million dollars on this case. <laughs> I... 
forget oftentimes that whenever we talk about these cases and it's like, oh, you know, just like a search party and everything and investigation going on, it's a lot of money that mm-hmm. gets put into these cases. Yeah, it's a lot. Mm. And in late 2011, Joshua underwent a series of court-ordered evaluations in Washington. And the evaluations by James Manley determined that Joshua had adequate parenting skills, a steady employment history, and no criminal record or history of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. However, Manley also raised issues concerning the ongoing criminal investigations and Joshua's failure to admit normal personal shortcomings his overbearing behavior of his son and his persistent defensiveness and paranoia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the initial recommendation was for Joshua to have visitations with his son several times a week, supervised by a social worker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the last week of January 2012, Utah police discovered about 400 images of simulated child pornography, bestiality, and incest on a computer seized from the Power family home. Fuck, man. <laughs> yeah. So the pornography had been cached when viewed by the previous owner of the computer, which had been purchased by Susan secondhand. Mm. But then Utah authorities misled the court and accused Joshua of having viewed the images. Yeah, but okay. the images are not considered illegal due to it being hand-drawn or cartoonish in 3D format. Mm. But were well, cause of great concern to many. Yeah. So Joshua was recommended to receive more thorough psychosexual evaluation and polygraph tests, but mainly such as the no change in the visitation schedule with the Power Boys. Yeah. So meanwhile, uh, Michael, the brother, established a Google site page which claimed that Susan's parents were abusing and neglecting the boys in collusion with child welfare authorities, and that West Valley City Police had both mishandled the investigation into Susan's disappearance and were harassing Joshua. And then lawyers for the Cox family disputed the allegations, and Google removed the site after a few days due to terms of terms of use violations. So this is where the case becomes tra- tragic, like really tragic. Okay, are you crying already? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> Both of you assume that I'm going to cry, <laughs> me crying later on. But yes, okay, I'm bracing myself. Okay. Yeah. So on February 5, 2012, social worker Elizabeth Griffin Hall called 911 after taking Charlie and Brayden to a supervised visit at Joshua House, Joshua's house in South Hill Hall. And Hall um, was supposed to monitor the visit between Joshua and the boys, but reported that he grabbed them and would not let her through the door. And soon after, the house exploded, killing Joshua and the two children. And yeah, local authorities treated the case as a double murder suicide, saying that the act appeared to have been deliberate. Yeah. <sighs> After a brief investigation, officials confirmed that the explosion had been deliberately planned. And the official cause of death for Joshua and the two boys was determined to be carbon monoxide poisoning. But uh, yeah, the, the coroner also noted that both children had significant chopping injuries on the head and neck. 
and a hatchet was recovered near Joshua's body, which investigators believe that he attacked the boys with it before being overwhelmed by smoke and fumes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fire investigation also found two five-gallon cans of gasoline on the premises, as well as evidence that gasoline had been spread throughout the house. Yeah, so friends and relatives of Joshua told authorities that he had contacted, contacted them by email minutes before the incident to say goodbye. Some of them, including his local bishop, received instructions for finding his money and shuttling off his utilities. And records also show that Joshua had withdrawn $7,000 from his bank account and had donated his children's toys and books to local charities the day before the incident. And then Joshua named Michael, the brother, as the main beneficiary of his life insurance policy. Yeah. The, the social worker must be feeling, must have felt so guilty. Okay, so um, I'm just going to interject here, right? <laughs> so I remember the video that I watched about uh, Susan Powell. So this video was actually about the 911 call the social mm. worker made. So I remember I was, because this video, they played the whole 911 call. Um, I don't know if I can find it on like a credible website that we can like you know cite it but if I can I will like insert it into this episode but um this 911 call was the most frustrating thing ever because the social worker essentially calls 911 and she's like hey I'm on this supervised visit um the, the the father of the two kids that I brought in just grabbed them, ran to the house and locked the door. I can't get in and I have a very bad feeling about this. And this fucking 911 <laughs> caller kept asking her like who she was, what she was doing there. And like, it took so long. I think it took about eight minutes, more than eight minutes. It took a very long time for this 911 um, operator to even alert authorities and like the reason why this guy came under so much flag is when you get these kind of calls right usually they're already sending dispatch while mm. getting the details this guy wasn't doing that he was questioning her asking her who she was he got very confused as to her role as the social worker which i didn't understand because i think it was like she was very articulate by the way she like said that she was a social worker she brought like these two boys for their visitation with the father. So now <laughs> report operator kept asking her like who she was, like what, like why she was there. I was like, holy guacamole. And she kept saying, I think I'm if I'm, if I'm recalling properly, she kept repeating the address. Like she was like, this is the address. And like he didn't send dispatch. So by the time the police, like at every the authorities came, right, the house had already blown up. And all of this could have been avoided, actually, if the operator had quickly just dispatched officers onto the scene. Yeah, uh, the 911 call is extremely distressing. I was, like, sobbing so hard listening to it because it was just... It would have been minutes to save these boys and, like... Mm. Yeah, it's just it's just so sad. It's really, really, really sad. Ugh. 
Yeah, I also just found a transcript of the thing. So if I can't include the clip, I will just include this um site that has the entire transcript of the yeah call. Yeah. It's mm. it's just it's insane. It's just so freaking insane. Look, yeah. okay, here, here's just one thing. Um okay, um let me just read it out. Okay, so the social worker says he, which is Josh Powell, who let me in the house. Number one reporter says, whose house is it? Social worker, he's got the kids in the house and he won't let me in. It's a supervised visit. Number one operator, I understand. Whose house is it? Social worker, Josh Powell. Number one operator, okay, you don't live there, right? Holy guacamole. Just what the hell? <laughs> Does he not know the concept of a social worker? No, yeah, yeah that's, that, that's what shocked me. It seems like he didn't understand what a social worker does. Okay, continue, okay? Social worker. No, no, I'm contracted to the state to provide supervised visitation. 911 operator. I see. Okay. And who is there to exercise the visitation? What? Social worker. I am and the visitation. And the visit is with Josh Powell. And he's the husband of... Number one operator cuts her off here. And who's supervising? Social worker, I supervise. Number one operator. So you supervise and you're doing the visit. You supervise yourself. Oh my God. Does this not make sense to you? It's so... Um, social worker, I supervise myself. I'm the supervisor here. Number one operator. Honda, take a deep breath, huh? Wait a minute. If it's a supervised visit, you can't supervise yourself if you're the visitor. No, you can't get all wrong. Oh my god. Here's the thing. As they are going back and forth, this stupid, extremely stupid conversation about supervised being unsupervised, Josh Powell was bludgeoning his sons to death. Literally, it's minutes, you know. Supervised meaning the boys and the father are being supervised, not her being supervised. What Precisely. the hell? She's a social worker and she says, oh I'm a social worker dispatched here for a visitation. I'm here to supervise a visit. And this 911 operator didn't understand. Why would she need a supervisor? <laughs> it's, oh my God. She's God. the supervisor supervising the visit. Oh my God. Okay, here, here's the other thing, okay? So she already said Josh Powell earlier on in the call, right? Okay. Number one operator is like, how many children? Social worker, two. Brayden is five, Charlie is seven. Number one operator and the dad's last name. Okay, deep breath. It's a very she long pause. Powell, P-O-W-E-L-L. The operator asks, two L's? Two L's at the end of Powell. Bro, she spelled it out for you. And she spells it out very <laughs> clearly in the clip. Bar. Social worker, yes. Nairon operator, his first name, his first name is Josh. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, native, he's white. Date of birth, I don't know. He's about 39. How tall? 5'10", 150 pounds. Hair color, brown. Did you notice what he was wearing? No, I didn't notice what he was wearing. Is he alone? I don't know. I couldn't get into the house. Are you in a vehicle now or on foot? I'm in a vehicle. I'm in a Prius, a 2010 Prius. 
The door is locked. He hasn't opened the door. I rang the doorbell and everything. I begged him to let me in. Please listen to my questions. Just, uh, by the way, this one operator, if I remember rightly, he started to sound very condescending. Huh? Please listen to my questions. What color is the Toyota Prius? Gray, dark gray. And the license number? I don't know. I can't look. Then she goes and she provides the license number. All right. We'll have somebody look for you there. Okay. How long will it be? I don't know, ma'am. They have to respond to emergency life-threatening situations first. The first available deputy will respond. Social worker. This could be life-threatening. He went to court on Wednesday and he didn't bring his kids back. And this is really, I'm afraid for their lives. Operator. Okay. Has he threatened the lives of the children previously? Social worker. I have no idea. 911 operator. All right, well, we'll have the first available deputy <laughs> contact you. <sighs> it's even worse when you hear the clip because this. I don't want to hear the clip. Talks down to her. I cannot believe, like, he was just like, listen, your entire situation about kids locked in a house with their dad is not a life threatening emergency. There are other emergencies out there. Like, dude, like, she is telling you that there is something wrong. Yeah, it, it, it kind of pisses me off. Also because, like, later on, I think this reporter was, like, he took it as, like, a learning lesson or whatever, whatever. I'm just like, bro. I mean, understandably, this operator might, like, be feeling extremely guilty about it in hindsight. It's just that, why? You know, oh, God. And like for nine one one operators, it's not. I don't know. You're not. It's not your role to like make you judgments. If it's, yeah, it's not your call to make a decision if it's life. You're there to categorize the call and send the necessary resources to that place, not be the armchair investigator or detective. Yeah, yeah, and and that's the thing. So that's why a lot of people. Um, critic, criticize this guy. It's not just that, like, so people were arguing that also, you know, to be a diamond operator, you also have to be calm when you are dealing with somebody who's like hysterical or dealing with a call like this. And sometimes it comes across as like being very unempathetic and whatnot, right? But this guy was just downright being just an asshole. Like he was just talking down to her. It's just so sad. Yeah, and actually I'm reading up. So he the operator received a formal reprimand and he acknowledged his mistake. And now he trains other first responders about the dangers of something he calls compassion fatigue. I don't know. It just I mean, listen, he might be a really great guy, but it's just I think particularly in this case is because it was two children also. And you cannot even begin to imagine the fear they would have felt in those last moments. Going in with a father who was meant to be this person who, like, protected them, you know, and having to meet such brutal ends. And they were children, mm. you know, five and seven. They had, they had their whole lives ahead of them, you know? I mean, we will never know if the police arrived a bit faster, if they would survive, because... 
Uh, she noted that when she was at the door, she could smell gasoline. Yeah. But still, but you know, it's, it's not like, his call to make when and when to like. Yeah, no, as in like, I mean, yes, I agree that maybe there's a possibility that even if the police had come the next second, it would have, you know, it they might not have been able to save the boys. But you know, there's always that hope. Yeah. You know, and and that chance maybe, was like taken. Yeah, away. and maybe if the police had come earlier, they might have been able to talk. Josh Powell out of it, you know, because mm. it wasn't it wasn't like an instantaneous blow up. I think there was some time between as well. So it's just um... <sighs> yeah. So other than the annoying nine one one operator Manly, mm-hmm. who had conducted the two thousand eleven to twenty twelve uh, evaluations of Joshua for the Washington authorities, also acknowledged his suspicions that Joshua was involved in his wife's disappearance. But he did not mention, mention these suspicions in his, in his report because they were beyond the scope of his duties and because Joshua had not been charged with any wrongdoing. Oh, God. Yeah. Doesn't I just feel like this investigation just wasn't thorough? I just feel... Did he hide the body that well? Yeah, it's like, huh? I don't know. It's just... uh, I just feel so much for her family, though. Mm. Like, the the grief from losing their daughter and then now from the grief of losing their grandchildren. Mm. Yeah, so on May 21st, 2013, West Valley City Police announced that they had closed the active investigation into Susan's disappearance. And then later in October 6, 2015, a federal judge in Washington state dismisses a lawsuit filed by um, Susan's parents uh, as they sued the Washington State Department of Social Health and Services, claiming social workers didn't do enough to protect their grandsons. But then the judge said um, federal law provides social workers with absolute immunity from liability to make sure the courts and others can pursue justice without fear of retribution. Hmm. Yeah, so four years later, in January 10, 2019, the United States of Courts of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit ruled that the family of Susan Cox um, can pursue a wrongful death lawsuit against the Washington State Department of Social and Health Services. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the court upheld the lower court's ruling that the social workers involved are immune. Yeah, so since her disappearance on December 6, um, 2009, her body has still not been found. And there were also a number of attempts by her family and relatives to declare her dead. So the attempts uh, were only successful on November 14, 2019, when she was finally declared legally dead by the state of Utah. Mm. Yeah, this is the case of Susan Powell. Yeah, it's just, oh, it's just so sad. Yeah, it's very shitty he that he that Joshua died with, you know, with like he's probably the only one who knows where the whereabouts yeah, of the body no is. Consequence. And it's even worse that his father is out there. Yeah, yeah. he got out of prison. He got out of prison. So he's just out there. He can do whatever he wants. And it's just <sighs> if I remember correctly, also like the father who was so insanely in love quotation marks with uh Susan like he just turned entirely against her 
and I think he would he would say things like how she tried to um sort of get him to do things like she was the one going after him it's just disgusting and that just tells you so much about who they are as people I mean, even when the investigators came to the father to tell him about the explosion, he wasn't surprised or he didn't even like, express like remorse or sadness or anything. It's <laughs> Apparently, he was more annoyed that they even bothered him. What the hell? Is your son? <laughs> uh, doesn't matter, so I even, guess. Even if you don't care about your son, it's your grandson's. Holy... Psychopath. Okay. Freaking disgusting human beings. Uh, I mean, we've covered like 60 plus cases now and like propensity <laughs> for humans to be disgusting, inhumane creatures is just still constantly mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Yikes. Well, thanks for the story, Honda. When I'm editing this episode, I'll have to look for the 911 call. So that's going to be fun. Oh, but the 911 call is absolutely heartbreaking. So if I'm unable to edit into this episode, um, if y'all are willing and in the mental hit space to listen to the call, y'all should, you know, give it a Google search. It's online. It's just so heart-wrenching. It's and so frustrating. It made me so upset. Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, and click that follow button on Spotify. You can also listen to us on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Amazon, and whatever podcast platform you listen to. And you can follow us on Instagram at HGU Podcast. Share us a message or send us a story if you'd like. You can also email us at hiddenamongustree at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Next week's our Halloween specials. Look forward to that. Adios. <laughs>